Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Stoicism is everywhere. TED Talks, Stoic On, Stoic Bros on TikTok, Stoic Quotes on Instagram, and across all platforms, the ancient Greek and Roman philosophy is seemingly dominated by one figure, Ryan Holiday and his Daily Stoic, with 60 million YouTube views, 1.9 million Instagram followers, and several New York Times bestsellers. But is Stoicism all it's cracked up to be? There are many things I admire about the Stoics, and many things to admire about Holiday and his work, but ultimately he often presents an emptied out interpretation of Stoicism that reduces it to therapeutic self-help cliches. But the broader question is this, taking it seriously, is Stoicism faulty in the first place? Does it have some major flaws, some contradictions? Is it a coherent view of the world? One of the first things you're unlikely to learn from Holiday is that the Stoics, starting with the ancient Greek founder Zeno and through to the Greek philosopher Epictetus and the Roman Stoics like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, had a philosophical system that was grounded in the worldview of the time. As we'll see, that's a pretty long time ago. The ancient Greeks argued that being a Stoic required a study of ethics, which is loosely what Holiday talks about, but also logic and physics. In short, a study of nature and the world. And the Stoics lived in a very different world to us, one that might have led to some faulty ideas that don't necessarily translate to the modern age. The Stoics had a lot of wisdom, but they were limited too. Remember, they worshipped different gods, believed in personal fate, didn't understand nature as well as we do, and didn't have access to many of the ideas we've developed over the last 2,000 years, and they lived pretty violent, brutish and short lives. So let's get stuck in. We'll see what Stoicism is, how to think about it, ask how it emerged and look at what ancient Greece and Rome was actually like, see what other philosophers like Nietzsche and Hegel had to say about the Stoics, look at where its contradictions might lie, and ask what it says about our own present historical moment. The foundation of Stoicism, where most start, is what has come to be known as the dichotomy of control. It's from the Greek philosopher Epictetus's Enchiridion, or Handbook, written in 125 AD. Epictetus says that the first task in life, the first job of the philosopher, is to separate matters into two buckets, what's in our control and what's not in our control. And this, this exercise, what we call the dichotomy of control, is really at the core of Epictetus's teachings. Is it up to me? Is it not up to me? Holiday says, Epictetus draws a dividing line between what some have called internals, 
things in our control and externals, things outside of our control. He said, things in our control are opinion, pursuit, desire, aversion, and in a word, whatever are our own actions. Things not in our control are body, property, reputation, command, and in a word, whatever are not our actions. We don't have any say about what happens to us, but our judgments about what happens to us, our dreams, likes, desires, are in our control. He said, for example, I cannot escape death, but I can escape fear of it. In this formulation, death is an external. We have no control over when it happens, but fear of death is an internal. We can control over whether we're afraid of it or not. The problem with this neat line between what we can and can't control is that on closer inspection, it becomes a little hazy. There are some things we have some control over, some things we could have control over, some things we can't control right now, but someone else could, and we could have some influence over them, for example. Some things we could have control over if we thought through a way of doing so. Some things we didn't have control over in the past, but could have in some way in the future. Epictetus might tell me, for example, that I have no control over how many people will like this video. I only have control over how much effort I put into it. Which sounds good, sure, but actually that means I do have some control over how many people like it. If I put more effort into it in some way, if I learn in the right ways from past mistakes, if I look earnestly and deeply into the camera lens, into your eyes and say, remember to like, maybe more will, although that was a little bit creepy on second thought, at least please don't switch off. But you see the point. There are lots of things I can do to control what the Stoics call an external factor. This is true with everything. You might say you have no control over the people around you, your health, the media, political decision-making, nature, but everywhere you look, in some small way, you do, by engaging in small actions, convincing, arguing, building, engaging. Everywhere you look, that line between what you can and cannot control blurs. On closer inspection, it looks like it's not a distinct or even real line at all. The division comes out of the thought of Zeno of Citium, the very first Stoic who set up his school of the Stoa in Athens in 301 BC. In trying to figure out what was truly good, Zeno looked at things that came from the external world, food, wealth, belongings, things like looks and talents that we're born with and so are still out of our control, still an external, and saw that all things could be used for good or bad, so they could not be considered categorically and universally good in themselves. None of them, talents, wealth, power, food, can be consistently depended on either. They come and go, they're fleeting. The only thing that decides whether things are used or misused is, that we do have control over, is our reason, our virtue, our good nature. All the rest, the external we should, he said, be indifferent to. But again, on closer inspection, this neat dividing line becomes blurry. The problem is that it's difficult to argue that we should be indifferent to things external to us and acknowledge that they're useful to us. Because as much as it would be nice if we weren't dependent on them, we are dependent on food, shelter, relationships, and so on. And so Zeno had to say that we had to be both indifferent to them, that they're external and out of our control, and class them as what he called preferred indifference, that we should prefer to have them if we can. As a result of this, the Stoic system comes up against a problem. In trying to categorise things as external and arguing for indifference to them, the philosophy has no way of truly valuing some things rather than others. It cuts the world off with a Stoic guillotine. 
If you acknowledge a connection to something as part of yourself, your identity, your way of life, you're dissolving that neat line the Stoics tried to construct. In valuing trees for building, nature for food, friendship for conversation, technology to aid us, we're acknowledging that the world isn't external to us, but that we're part of it. As I've said in previous videos, we're not people looking out at nature, but we are nature, reflecting on itself. We need a way of valuing things, and thinking about that is where philosophy often comes in. Because without a value system, we have no basis for acting, for choosing, for thinking, and valuing, in its very definition, is attachment. In valuing food, we acknowledge that we need it, that we're connected to it, that it's actually part of us. Hope, need, want, desire, movement, life, all of these are the result of value systems, of connecting us to the world around us. To divide the world, as we'll see shortly, is to alienate ourselves from it. So the next question we should want to ask is, why did the Stoics want to divide themselves from the world? A central message of Stoicism is that life is short, unpredictable, difficult, that all things come and go, flourish then pass, rise and fall. Things in the universe are transitory. All things human, Seneca reminds us, are short-lived and perishable. Buddhists argue that because of this, we should let go of all desire, because desiring will only lead to disappointment. However, Stoics allowed for some desire. We should view life's conditions with joy, as Seneca put it. We should be very careful in what we desire, though. We should, for the most part, desire only two things. One is virtue, which for the Stoics means living according to nature, and we'll come back to that. And the other is tranquility, eudaimonia, good spirit, calmness. To find this sense of calmness, Seneca counselled that we should always reflect on the bad things that could happen to us. Misfortune, he said, is felt most by those who expect nothing but good fortune. So if we take note of or imagine the bad things that might happen to us before we start a task that might be frustrating or go on a journey where we might get stuck in traffic, if we do this, the misfortune will have less of an impact on us. Epictetus, for example, said that as we care for our children, we should also reflect on the possibility that they could die tomorrow. So on the one hand, we should remember that life is short, painful, harsh and frustrating. Marcus Aurelius reminded himself every morning that, quote, the people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous and surly, and remind ourselves, as Aurelius says, that death hangs over you. And we should remember that those things are externals, they're outside of our spheres of influence. Okay, there's a good reason Seneca and Marcus and Epictetus, Marcus? Marcus Aurelius? Aurelius sounds weird. Marcus Aurelius, I feel like you should say his full name every time. Marky Mark? Back when Marky Aurelius was Marky Mark? There's a good reason Seneca, Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus would be attracted to advice like this. They were Romans. The ancient world was, of course, a pretty harsh, unpredictable, frustrating and fleeting one. Nothing was secure, life was capricious, dangerous and short. Hunger, pestilence, warfare and tragedy were commonplace. Take Seneca. Emperor Claudius had condemned him to death after he'd supposedly had an affair with his niece. He decided instead to banish Seneca and confiscated his property. Seven years later, Claudius's new wife, Agrippa, convinced the emperor to recall Seneca to tutor her son Nero. Seneca, of course, obliged and taught the young Nero some philosophical wisdom. Mercy should be the basis of his rule, that his power should be shared with senators. He taught him about justice and the Stoic tradition. But Nero was vain, jealous and insecure. 
He tormented, banished and executed his enemies. He murdered two wives, one of them was pregnant. He had his own mother murdered in a specially constructed boat that was meant to collapse at sea. She somehow survived and he had to send his guards to murder her instead. He tortured Christians in theatrical shows, some were torn apart by dogs and Seneca for his part defended Nero after he'd murdered his own mother. Eventually, a conspiracy grew to have Nero replaced, 19 senators took part, Nero retaliated and eventually ordered Seneca to commit suicide and of course he obliged, slitting his wrists and dying in the bath. Being a philosopher, after all, was an occupational hazard in antiquity. Socrates had been condemned to drink chemlock to kill himself, and later Emperor Domitian had banished all philosophers from the Roman Empire. Eventually, the parts of Rome revolted against Nero, and the conspiracy to have him killed grew. Nero fled and committed suicide outside of Rome's walls. Nero gets a bad name, justifiably, but his rule wasn't particularly exceptional. As Julius Caesar knew, in Rome, no one could be trusted. Wives, bodyguards, friends, colleagues, slaves, all at different times murdered their emperors, and they had good reason. Roman emperors tormented senators and aristocrats. At one dinner party, the Emperor Gaius burst into spontaneous laughter and when asked what was funny, replied, just the thought that I would only have to nod and your throats would be cut on the spot. Domitian invited senators to a dinner party at which everything was painted in black and the senators' names were engraved in tombstone slabs at the dinner table. During the dinner, the emperor taunted them by talking about nothing but death, before simply sending them home at the end of the night. Not the best Friday nights, I'm sure. He, in turn, was later slaughtered himself. Ha ha ha. Domitian's successor, Claudius, executed 35 senators. Caligula terrorised the state and was eventually killed by senators and guards after numerous previous failed plots. Vespasian allegedly started the Great Fire of 64 AD to clear Rome for his own new palace. Every succession was a crisis, the powers between emperors and the senate constantly tested. Incest, rape and paedophilia were common, fires and pestilence were frequent. Whether Nero fiddled while Rome burned as the story goes or not, Rome did burn for five days. Almost a quarter of it burnt to the ground and in half of Rome's districts only a few buildings remained standing. After Spartacus's revolt, 6,000 slaves were crucified along an 120 mile stretch of road. Imagine a crucified man every 30 metres for 120 miles. Just imagine the nightmare of walking for days along that main road past that agony. I think that's one of the most brutal things I've heard from history. Even the Nazis wouldn't have dared do something like that publicly. With all of that in mind, is it any wonder that Seneca wanted to remind himself daily of how harsh and fleeting the world was? Focusing on what was in his control might have been a good way to put the hazards of elite Roman life out of his mind. Historian Barry Strauss summarised it like this, Nero's Rome was rich, as no one knew better than he did, yet beneath the opulence lay emptiness. Seneca and the Stoics understood inner peace as a solution. The dangers of antiquity are neatly summed up by the Roman saying, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Stoicism is not a philosophy of life, it's a philosophy of despair. Another thing that you might not get from watching someone like Holiday is that for the ancient Greeks, Stoicism was a philosophical system that was meant to include the study of logic, physics and ethics, and that their ethics, the study of how we should act, the part you most hear about today, relies on their ancient view of logic and physics as well. Cicero, for example, wrote that the Stoic system is so well constructed, so firmly jointed and welded into one, 
with such close interconnection of the parts that if you alter a single letter, you shake the whole structure. Now, the Stoic view of physics included much more than our modern view does. It encompassed the study of nature, theology, the universe, how things worked, and crucially, and this is what Cicero was getting at, the entire universe, the physics of it, was ordered exactly how God had planned it. That means that the ethics, how we should act, is in accordance with that plan. As Zeno said, to live a good, virtuous life, we should act in accordance with nature. Marcus Aurelius talks at numerous points in the meditations about how we should all act according to, quote, nature's law, and how we all have a place in nature's scheme, and how we shouldn't rebel against nature and do what nature requires of us. What follows from this? To live according to what nature requires, requires having a view of what nature in itself is like, how things are ordered, what nature's schema is, what that grand plan is. And being grounded in a religious worldview, the ancient Stoics believed wholeheartedly in fate. Not just that they should accept what happens to them, or that our fate is out of our hands, but that our entire lives were mapped out by the gods. They believed in the goddesses of fate, Clotho, Lachesis, Atropos, this is raised a lot and connected to the ethics, the theories of how we should act. Seneca said, for example, that it is a great consolation that it is together with the universe that we are swept along. Epictetus said that we should want events to happen as they do happen. And Holiday has a tattoo of the Stoic phrase Amor Fati, love of fate on his arm and sells an Amor Fati coin. And that's what we have to do with every obstacle that we face. Whatever it is, big or small, fair or unfair, chosen or tragic, we say Amor Fati, love it all, use it as fuel, become better for this having happened. Aurelius said, if the inward power that rules us be true to nature, it will always adjust itself readily to the possibilities and opportunities ordered by circumstance. We should bend ourselves to nature, rather than bending nature to ourselves. What this means is that because everything is both out of our control, but also ordered neatly according to plan, according to fate, the only thing that can be out of step with all this is our own souls. We are wrong. We have bad desires, bad reactions, incorrect judgments, and we must focus on our own internal soul, not the externally ordered, God-given world that's always right. We should, according to Zeno, live in harmony with nature by changing ourselves to do so. First, this is a very particular worldview, and you can see in it the Stoic influence on early Christianity. The concept of original sin, for example, that we're born wrong and have to work on ourselves to fix ourselves, to get us back to where we should be. And all of this, while sounding good, ignores the fact that often the reverse is true. That we bend and mould nature and the world to our own desires as much as we bend ourselves to fit in to what nature requires of us. In other words, we shape the external world as much as the external world shapes us. We are, after all, a pretty handy species. A dam is a great example. The Stoic view is that a flood is an act of God, an act of nature, and that to live in accordance with nature, we should not live near somewhere that could be flooded, say. We should avoid arid land if we want to grow crops, but we should also live near water to fish in it. But we also invent dams, bridges, sea defences, boats. We, in some way, have control over nature. We use nature, we direct it for our purposes. In his book on Stoicism, philosopher William Irvine says, we can either spend this moment wishing it could be different, or we can embrace this moment. 
but this advice could sound just as good in reverse. We can either spend this moment resigned to acceptance, or we can fight to change it. Is this not the basis of engineering, science, of progress itself? Broadly speaking, fatalism has gone out of fashion. In history, for example, we no longer believe in what's called teleology, that there's a predetermined end to history. Theological views of fate have also been contradicted by modern science, astrology replaced by astronomy. Evolution, for example, is not teleological, it's random selection. The idea that you should love your fate is also quite slavish. Holiday says that you should not only love fate, but say, I'm going to be better for this happening to me. It's the whatever doesn't kill you will make you stronger mantra. And sure, it sounds good, but it's demonstrably false. Some things quite clearly harm us and don't make us stronger. They should be avoided or rallied and fought against. Should a slave love their fate? Or should they rally against their chains? Should women have not agitated for the vote? Both of these things were said to be contrary to nature at the time. The slave was naturally in bondage after being defeated or by being a lesser species. The woman was not meant to be rational, was meant to be too pushed and pulled around by their desires to vote properly, to vote responsibly. Should someone who loses a child, for example, or someone who lives through a horrific war, or lives their life in servitude, really always say, I'm better off for having this happen to me. This is historically illiterate. It's ahistorical. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So Epictetus was a slave. Seneca was at the center of a madman's empire. What about the wise philosopher king, Marcus Aurelius? Well, Aurelius lived through one of the worst periods in Roman history. He had bad health, might have been an opium addict, had a wife who had affairs and supposedly slept with gladiators at their seaside villa. During his reign, Rome was attacked by the Parthians in the east, leading to a four-year war, then by Germans in the north, then by the Antonine Plague, which killed millions from Europe to Asia. According to witnesses, the dead were piled up outside homes as groans of agony came from within. The war with the German tribes in the north was bad. In one battle, the Germans defeated and killed 20,000 Romans, and to top it off, in 175 AD, one of Aurelius's own generals rebelled, claiming the throne for himself. Most Eastern Romans supported his cause, and some sources even say that Marcus's own wife took his side. The rebellion lasted months. Aurelius was about to march east when luckily a centurion killed the general. Marcus did not enjoy his job, admitted he had trouble controlling his anger, had a dim view of, and often seemed to despise other people, and to top it off, his son, Commodus, was a bit of a disappointment to say the least. He was assassinated not long after he took the throne. No wonder Marcus was drawn to a philosophy that divides the world up into internals and externals. 
Historian Barry Strauss writes, he could be harsh or capricious. He reinforced class distinctions. Persecution of Christians increased on the local level during his reign, and Marcus surely bears some responsibility. Living with the constant threat of treachery and pestilence, it's no surprise that Aurelius needed to meditate so carefully on the nature of death. So is it any wonder that he told himself, quote, to despise not death, smile rather at its coming. It is among the things that nature wills. And to recommend to take it that you have died today and your life story is ended and henceforth regard what further time you may be given as uncovenanted surplus and live it out with harmony with nature. In fact, Aurelius talks endlessly about death and dying, as if he's trying to convince himself of something that he does in fact fear, as if the lady doth protest a bit too much. The Roman historian Cassius Dio tells us that he did not meet with the good fortune that he deserved, for he was not strong in body and was involved in a multitude of troubles throughout practically his entire reign, but for my part, I admire him all the more for this very reason, that amid unusual and extraordinary difficulties he both survived himself and preserved the empire. And the philosopher J. A. Mollison sums it up like this, if one suffers slavery, as Epictetus did, advises a violent and impulsive emperor, as Seneca did, or faces wars on multiple fronts, as Marcus did, then the invitation to turn away from the external world towards the inner citadel of reason may provide great comfort. But am I being unfair? Stoicism, as I said at the beginning, does still seem useful. There's much to admire. And that Stoicism has some important insights on the one hand and seems to be incoherent on the other can be seen in the 19th century uber-chad Frederick Nietzsche's take on the philosophy. In much of his work, Nietzsche takes inspiration from the Stoics. He actually likes their love of fate, he admires their self-sufficiency, with making yourself as resilient to external pressures as possible. He said, we free spirits are the last of the Stoics. But he also saw where Stoicism came from. He wrote that Stoicism may well be advisable for those with whom fate impoverishes and who live in violent times and depend on impulsive and dangerous people. And at other times, he absolutely despises the Stoics, especially their view that emotions and passions are actually externals, things that happen to us, things we should fight against, things that are irrational compared to what's important, living in accordance with our reason and peaceful eudonomic virtue. He wrote that the primary intention of Stoic education, to annihilate easy excitability, to restrict more and more the number of objects that can affect a person at all, belief in the contemptibility and low worth of most things that arouse the passions, hatred and hostility against excitement, as if the passions themselves were a sickness or something ignoble scrutiny for all ugly and distressing revelations of suffering, in some petrification as a remedy against suffering. He continues that this view is repugnant to him because it underestimates the worth of pain. It is as useful and beneficial as pleasure, the worth of excitation and passion. And he complains of the indifference and stone-column coldness which the Stoics prescribed and applied as a cure for the feverish idiocy of the emotions. The passions, the emotions, what used to be referred to as the affects, things that affect you, that seem to come from outside your mind, come in many forms. Joy, excitability, fear, anxiety, anger, love, seal. For the most part, the Stoics argued that they're externals, that they happen to us, or at least that they're the result of faulty judgments about what's happening to us, leading to a negative emotion like anger or fear about something. But importantly, our reason, our virtue, our judgment is separate. Our souls are separate. 
Instead of indulging the passions too much, we should follow our reason, follow our souls and seek eudaimonia, seek tranquility and virtue. Holiday says, And then often by being anxious, by being worried, by taking things personally, by being afraid, we're taking our eye off the ball. And so I want you to see those emotions not just as unpleasant, but actively destructive because they are. Stuff's gonna happen in life that makes us emotional, but we have to realize that we're only compounding that by acting on those emotions. The Stoics adopt this mind-body dualism in which the mind is a spiritual soul and the body, and that includes the emotions, is capricious, unstable, wildly passionate, like a horse that's resisting, that's outside of your control. This does not align with contemporary studies. The neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, for example, has influentially argued that emotions are part of our cognition. They're not just part of being human, which they are, they're also part of how we reason, how we engage with and appraise the world. Emotions orientate us in the world. The sudden fear of something directs our attention towards something that might be dangerous. Hunger towards food, laughter towards friendship, passions and zeal and excitement towards projects that we think are worthwhile, and so on. Emotions colour the world in for us. We shouldn't push them down. We should listen to them. We should use them. We should live through them, acknowledging that they're part of our very constitution. For example, Holiday says, And then you realize, oh, the anxiety has nothing to do with any of the things. It's actually, Mark Strauss talks about this in meditations. He, he says, I escaped anxiety. And then he goes, no, actually, I discarded it. And he, wrote, he writes this during a plague, no less. But um, he goes, I discarded it because it was within me. That was a breakthrough I sort of had. I was like, oh, I thought I was stressed and anxious and worried because of all of these very reasonable things that cause those things in your life, work, family stuff. And then when all that gets pared down, you realize it's like, oh no, it was me. Now, of course, many emotions, like anything, can be harmful if they're felt too much, if they take us over or if they negatively affect our lives. But I think saying that anxiety is about the person rather than, for example, what they went through or the context or a condition can be a pretty harmful message. Sometimes anxiety is trivial, mistaken, sure. But sometimes anxiety can alert us to a very real problem, a real danger, a real issue, either in the world or within ourselves. What we feel as negative often has a positive value. It's important to feel. It's important to travel through the emotions rather than judge them, rather than push them away, something separate from us. What if suffering is important for empathy? What if pain is important for pleasure? Anger important for justice? Sadness for processing loss? And so on. What if, in short, it's important to feel? Nietzsche's Übermensch Zarathustra says, In order for the creator to be, suffering is needed and much transformation. And he says, The tremendous tension imparted to the intellect by its desire to oppose and counter pain makes him see everything he now beholds in a new light. With dreadful clear-sightedness as to the nature of his being, he cries to himself, Raise yourself above your life, as above your suffering. Look down into the deep and the unfathomable depths. Several studies have backed up this idea that we need to feel a full range of emotions to help lead a balanced life. Emotions help us to evaluate what happens to us and decide what to do about it. What this shows is that emotions are a complex but important part of our lives, for better and for worse. It's not to justify being an angry or pessimistic or melancholic person, it's just to say that we often underestimate the reasons we're feeling a certain way and fail to appreciate or analyse or work through or experience them properly. Nietzsche summed it up like this. 
the passions have been brought into ill repute on account of those who were not sufficiently strong to employ them. What if, instead of positing death as something to resign to, life as something fleeting, emotions as something to be overcome, and nature as something that happens fatalistically to us, we instead see ourselves as something connected to the world, as something in a positive relationship to it, ourselves sometimes shaping it, changing it, moulding it, using it, protecting it. What if, rather than being indifferent and limiting what we value, we actively value? We make leaps of passionate faith. We say, yes, I want this. We acknowledge that we are moved by and move the world. What if, rather than amor fati, rather than loving fate, we rage and rally against it? Instead, what if we say pugna fati, fight fate? In Beyond Good and Evil, Nietzsche wrote sarcastically, So you want to live according to nature? Oh, you noble Stoics, what a fraud is in this phrase. Imagine something like nature, profligate without measure, indifferent without measure, without purpose and regard, without mercy and justice, fertile and barren and uncertain at the same time, living. Isn't that wanting specifically to be something other than this nature? Isn't living assessing, preferring, being unfair, being limited, wanting to be different? The German philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel also had a dim view of the Stoics. He also believed it was a particularly Roman way of seeing the world, a world which was divided into masters and slaves. He argued that Stoicism emerged from a slave consciousness. The slave, oppressed by its master, turns inwards to the only true freedom it has, their own thought, the only thing no one can take away from it. This leads to scepticism, to always saying no to everything external, turning away from the external world into something else, and ultimately, Hegel says, to an unhappy consciousness, that denies its connection to God and the world. The Stoic slave says, yes, there might be events in the world that seek to dominate me, that seek to destroy or manipulate me. Yes, the world is bad, but my judgments are always free. And so the slave puts up a psychological wall of self-defense, but it cannot account for an important fact. No matter how high and how well-constructed that wall is, the world keeps happening to it, and it keeps happening to the world. The slave keeps desiring, wanting, needing, feeling, knowing, and the pressures and challenges of the world keep bumping up against it, daring it to engage with the world, to change the conditions it finds itself in, to drive history forward. Why else do we invent things? Why else do we make our cases, make arguments, start projects? As philosopher Bernard Register writes, the creative individual deliberately seeks to confront and break boundaries, to expand the domain of human experience, to overcome limitations hitherto unchallenged, and to vanquish resistance perhaps thought unassailable. Rather than saying, it's not that this thing that's happened to me is bad, it's only my judgment of it that's bad, we instead put our own chips on the table and say, my judgment of this thing as being bad is true. I'm going to go out on a limb and fight for it. I'm going to make the case, make the argument. I'm going to embody it passionately, this fight, this project. I'm going to say, this law, this convention, this idea, this poison, this person, this argument, this video, it's bad. In making a value judgement about something, we make plans, we think through into the future about what sort of lives we want to lead, what we want to design, build, write, what sort of friendships we might want, or where we want to go and how we might want to get there. Stoicism advises to live in the moment as if each could be your last, memento mori, 
do every act of your life as though it was the very last act of your life, as Aurelius said. Again, this sounds good, but it's not a comprehensible philosophy. It doesn't all hang together. No action makes sense without reference to a longer plan. What if, instead, we lived every act of our lives as if we're going to live a lifetime? Is this not more life-affirming? To live as if we're making each moment part of a greater whole, thinking through our long-term plans, long-term projects, greater life goals. Living each day as if it's your last, as if life is fleeting and that you might be slaughtered by a Roman emperor or a barbarian horde at any moment is incoherent. We can only live with dreams. Historian Henry Gruber makes this point in reference to Seneca, who in the midst of war sees his estate given to plunder, his daughters outraged by the enemy, and his native city taken over by the enemy. Seneca says, Amid swords flashing on every side and the uproar of soldiers bent on pillage, amid flames and blood and the havoc of a smitten city, amid the crash of temples falling upon their gods, one man alone had peace. As Gruber says, this is a horrific passage. All this has happened to Seneca, and yet still, apparently, quote, the sage stands unmoved. Amor fati? No. Pugna fati. Plan, dream, live, desire, hope, fight against fate. To think about why Stoicism is having a resurgence, we should think about our own moment, our own historical moment, and think about its relationship to philosophy. Modernity, the rise of science, democracy, industry, technology, is about one thing more than anything, control. Science and technology in particular, since the Enlightenment, has been about what the sociologist Max Weber has called the disenchantment of nature demystifying the world in order to understand and to increasingly have some control over it. We understand physics to build machines and infrastructure, understand the elements, control diseases with medicines, study geology and use minerals, design blueprints, rationalise transport networks and so on. But post-modernity questions this control. How much have we really tamed the world? Neoliberalism and digital financial markets means capital moves quickly and unpredictably around the planet through stock markets. Governments have little control over global prices and investments. Banks pretend to be in control, but the 2008 crash proved otherwise. Iraq and Afghanistan proved that the US is not in control of international affairs as much as it thought. In a post-truth world, facts are constantly up for dispute. A pandemic reminded us that we're not in control as disease as we think. And everywhere, we have to go through the world giving up our own individual control to experts on topics we don't know anything about. We get onto planes without knowing how they function. We use phones without knowing how they work. We listen to scientists and experts and put our trust in them or not. In other words, we're bombarded with even more of those stoic externals, the things outside of our control. The sociologist Zygmunt Bauman writes that the dominant sentiment is now the feeling of a new type of uncertainty, not limited to one's own luck and talent, but concerning as well the future shape of the world, the right way of living in it, and the criteria by which to judge the rights and wrongs of the way of living. Combine all of this with falling living standards, stagnant wages for decades, rising inequality, and a period of unprecedented technological and social disruption, and we have some explanation as to why neo-neo-stoicism is everywhere. With so much change going on, it might feel like we know as little about what to expect about what's coming up in our world as the Romans did about theirs. But at the same time, the new media landscape means that more and more people have access to philosophy and new ideas more than ever. 
And if Stoicism was one of the first philosophical systems, and one of the simplest, maybe we're seeing the beginning of a great interest in philosophy, a new, widespread, philosophical renaissance. Defenders will say that the Stoics didn't actually advocate resignation from life. They were active participants in the world. They were explorers, they wrote books, they built philosophical schools, and they were emperors. But that's not my point. The point is, of course, that it is impossible to resign from life, and their philosophical system reflects that that's a contradiction in it. That's not to say that they shouldn't be read, studied, engaged with, that they had some useful insights. But we should remind ourselves that Stoicism was a philosophy of despair, adopted by an elite cabal of bickering and brutal Bronze Age warlords who believed in goddesses of fate. They weren't modern. They had no understanding of science, of change, of progress, of what is possible in the world. In short, Stoicism was one of our first attempts at philosophy. Thank you as always for watching, and a huge thanks of course, as always, to my Patreons, without which this just wouldn't be possible. So if you want to see scripts, if you want to chat in the Discord server, if you want your name in the credits, but most of all, if you just want to help support make this content, then click the link in the description below. If not, you can like, you can share, you can leave a comment, all those things that help the algorithm. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.